listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning. It is... uh... Good to see you. If you have your copy of God's Word, I would go ahead and invite you to go to Romans uh, chapter 2. We'll be uh, going through the the second half of the chapter as uh, Pastor Charlie covered the first half of Romans 2 uh, last week. And and I'm not sure about you, but uh, one of the things I've already begun to feel even this early into Romans is the reality that uh, Paul, as he was uh, laying out this letter and um, really mounting a defense of the gospel and also a a lot of explanation, is is that uh, Paul really does not rush through the bad news. Uh, And I feel like uh, as a pastor and as one who has spent a a good chunk of my life now proclaiming uh, the realities of God, I I know I have this tendency in my own heart and life is uh, that I want to rush past the bad news and and get to the good news. But uh, Paul has really uh, spent a considerable amount of time uh, just kind of letting the weight of the human condition and that reality sit on the readers of this book, and we're going to continue that this morning. We don't want to rush through all of these chapters. We want to let the Word of God uh, sit and and rest on our hearts. And so uh, I would really say it's not uh, until about halfway through chapter 3 where he begins to transition into what might be construed as uh, some better news about how uh, God is going to work in our condition and how he has worked in our condition. And and so if I could sum up uh, the past couple of weeks we've spent in these first uh, two chapters of the book of Romans, I would say uh, Paul is making a, a, a pretty simple argument in, in one way, I, I, and I would sum it up in this way. Uh, for human beings, I would say that uh, we have a problem, and then the second part of what Paul is doing is establishing that we can't fix it. We have a problem, we can't fix it, but we try to. And that's what happens over and over again in our lives. We have a problem. As he has laid out, we suppress the truth about God. There is something in our brokenness and the sinful condition in which we come into the world where we try to avoid the realities of what God has put in place. And not only do we suppress the truth about God, we suppress the truth about ourselves. We have a problem. We can't fix it but we do try to. We recognize that there is this brokenness in us, this brokenness in the world around us. We can feel that problem, see that problem, maybe identify it to some level, but there is still something that I know for myself pulls out of me every time that I want to try to manage that problem. I want to fix it on our own. And so although I might recognize even at this point in my life, like I can't fix it myself, I am going to try to. I'm going to try to just utilize and employ different strategies to deal with the mess and the brokenness that I find inside my own heart. That's one of the things we all try to do. We try to manage that reality that we do suppress the truth of God, and we do try to minimize the reality of our own sin. And so I found just like within the scope of human strategy to uh, deal with their own mess, there's usually kind of two main ingredients that come along with all the different strategies we might fall into, and one of them is self-reliance. 
That's one of the, I would say, main ways we fall into trying to fix the mess and the problem we find ourselves in. One ingredient is self-reliance, and then the other one is self-deception. Those uh, inhabit so many of the strategies we employ to deal with the brokenness of ourselves and the world around us. We're going to talk about one specific strategy this morning, and I hope uh, just the reading of God's Word and letting that wash over us, hopefully kind of prime the pump for where we're going this morning. But I would say a calm strategy we will use to try to deal with the brokenness in our own lives is the strategy of religion. And so uh, I, I know uh, just within our context, kind of within our church tradition, uh, kind of being within the evangelical stream of how we participate in church, we tend to kind of vilify this word, this word religion. And maybe you have found yourself saying at some point, you know, it's a relationship, not a religion. We have kind of these pithy sayings to try to uh, capture some of the realities of the scripture. But I, I would say by and large, like I do not view this word negatively. Like I think religion is a good thing. This idea of of a codified set of beliefs about the God of the universe, that we have received his revelation and we would look within the scriptures and realize there are, are forms to how God has called his people to live their lives and to practice a belief in him. Like religion is not bad. And so although we might uh, try to dance around that word at times and j highlight the relational aspect of God, and that's definitely within his word, but you know, anytime we as a people uh, might say something along the lines of like, hey, uh, we just are, are going to champion doctrine. Like, that is an appeal to religion. It means there is a standard, there is a way in which God has called his people to live his lives, and there are set beliefs about that God as found within the scriptures. Religion is not a bad thing. But what Paul's going to unpack as we get into this chapter a little bit more is that there is this human inclination that if we have been brought up in the forms of religion to think that we might be an exception to the spiritual reality that we can't fix our own problem. And that's what he's going to attack this morning. And one of the things we need to recognize within ourselves that if we are religious by nature, if we do adhere to the beliefs and teachings of the Christian faith, there is going to be that pull within us to think we can manage our own brokenness without Christ. And so one of the ways we do that so often if we are religious by nature is the lie of comparison. And so if we are viewing life through the lens of I am adhering to a set of rules and beliefs and principles, it will not be hard for us to begin to uh, seek to justify ourselves by looking at others' lives and uh, checking the box that I do it a little bit better. And that's one of those strategies of um, uh, self-deception um, um, and self-sufficiency. If we are religious by nature, we, are, we will ultimately fall into the trap of comparison. But one of the things we can probably recognize straight off the bat is that our neighbors and coworkers and family members and the people we might see out in the world are not the standard by which we are measured. We are measured by the perfect law of God. He is the standard. Another way I want you to think about it this morning, because we will be digging into the scriptures, and I'm sure there is some familiarity in the room, is that, um, and I know I'm speaking for myself, I could fall into what we might just label older brother syndrome. 
And so if you've ever read the story of the prodigal son, which is this parable Jesus uses to teach about what it means to follow God, uh, we oftentimes focus on a specific brother mentioned in the story. It's the one who wanders off and does all of the crazy things and gets into all manner of mess and sin and vile living. And that person in that story eventually comes to their senses and realizes like, hey, in my father's household, it was so much better if I could just return to the father. And as he's making his way back, we know that that father who is that that figure of how God receives his children is waiting for his son to return. And when his son returns from all the sin and all the mess and all the junk he had gotten into, the father welcomes him back into the house and there's much rejoicing and he throws a party because he says, my son, was dead and now he is alive. He was lost, but now he is found. And we celebrate that. And we talk about that storyline so often in church because it's so embedded in the scriptures that all of us at some point have rebelled and turned away from the God who loved us. And we have gotten ourselves into all form and manner of mess. And so many testimonies within this church would, would, would be along those storylines of how God saved them out of incredible destructive patterns of behavior. But there's this other son that's mentioned. It's the son who never went off and did anything crazy, who kept the moral standards, who stayed within his father's household, and when his younger brother comes back, he gets mad. And I think that's what we need to address this morning, is that there is going to be this tendency within a religious gatherings, within the household of faith, that if we have um, been doing this long enough and we practice the forms good enough, It'll make us an exception to that rule that we have a problem that we can't fix on our own. And that's where Paul is going in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 12 this morning. We're going to take it in in three different sections. So if you would, uh, once again, uh, open up the word of God. We're going to read verse 12 through 16. This is what it says. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so as Paul is introducing this idea, I think what he is uh, making evident in his explanation right here is that humanity, by and large, is very similar. Like, and we would recognize that. We would recognize that even us as religious people who are followers of Jesus have a sin nature in and of ourselves. And so people, by and large, across the gamut of humanity, there are going to be some people who are a little bit better or some people who are a little bit worse at keeping rules. It's just kind of a a natural aspect of being humans. We are very similar. And so this reality of what he is saying is he's saying like, hey, some people are going to be brought up within the forms of religion. They're going to be taught outwardly the expression of God's law of how he has told people to live well in his good universe. And there's going to be some of those people, and they're going to be a little bit better or a little bit worse at keeping all those commandments. And there's going to be some people who were brought up outside of religion, that they weren't instructed that there is this higher authority outside of their lives that has designed life to work a certain way. And those people still have a conscience. 
that God has embedded it in his reality that every single human on some level has this knowledge of that there is a right and there is a wrong. And among those people, there's going to be some people that are a little bit better at keeping some rules and some people are going to be a little bit worse. And so that's what he's saying right there. He's saying that all of sin without the law, so brought up without the forms, they're going to perish without the law. They're not going to have those forms. But all who have sinned under the law, you know, been brought up, been taught the, the, the rules of the Lord, will be judged by the law. Because it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law who are justified. And so once again, humanity, by and large, uh, some of us, you know, just have uh, different levels of self-discipline. We have different inclinations. There's going to be things that pull in our hearts and some things that come naturally to us. And so humanity, by and large, some are going to be a little bit better and some are going to be a little bit worse at keeping rules. And that's one of the reasons our religious strategy is flawed. People do have a conscience. And so we can just look around at life right now, and you probably have a, a coworker, a friend, uh, a relation, somebody in your life who is not a religious person, does not submit their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, but is a moral person. And that's going to begin to poke against this reality that uh, uh, we often kind of project on life, which I would not say is a, a gospel message, is that the point of religion is to make us a slightly better person. And that's not true. And that's why we do begin to say things like, you know, I'm not religious, but uh, I do have this relationship with God because we know that is part of the scriptural teaching about what Christianity is, but we often default to the idea of, of the scale. You know, even if we've been brought up in church, been brought up teach, uh, being taught the Bible, we often think in terms of like, okay, I just want to be a little bit better of a person. And we can begin to adopt that idea of religion as a justification, like, hey, if I just lived a little bit more moral this week, stacked a couple of good coins on the scale to balance it out, my life is going to be acceptable in the eyes of God. But the religious strategy is flawed. Because all of us, in some degree or another, are going to be a little bit better or a little bit worse at keeping the commandments. And that's why you do have non-religious, non-Christian people that are good, moral people. That's what Paul is describing right here. This is the reality. But he's going to begin to attack, if you have been brought up in the forms of religion, this is why it is flawed to trust in it to fix the problems that you are facing. And so he kind of breaks it down in, into two different ideas, and we, we already heard a little bit of it, but he, he highlights two things that the hearers, the Jewish believers, would have been brought up with and would have been tempted to place their trust in. Uh, the first thing he begins to talk about is this idea of the law. It was unique, even at that time. You know, if you know your ancient history, like the Jewish people, the uh, Israelites, you know, very early on codified this idea of how humanity is supposed to live. And so if you were brought up within that culture, it's like, hey, you are the inheritor of these rules. And you, so you're going to be taught from birth what is right, what is wrong, according to the law of God. And that is a good thing. And so even now, I'd say within our context, like we're in uh, southern United States, you're attending a Bible church this morning, like, Probably a lot of you have the story similar to mine, like my entire life, I've been taught this book, and that is a good thing. You know, um, uh, from birth, I have had the Bible read over me. I've went to every VBS. I used to do RAs. Have any of y'all ever done RAs? It was like Baptist Boy Scouts. You know, I had a medal because in one year, I memorized a hundred different Bible verses. Like, I have been taught the book. And so that's what he's talking about right here. Like, you have the law that's been given to you. And then he goes into this other section. He begins to talk about circumcision. 
And so that would be talking about the Old Testament covenant that the people of Israel were a chosen people, that they were set apart from God. They had this heritage of faith that like, hey, God's people right here, you're a part of this lineage, this legacy, this tradition. And so we have that. We have the law and we have the covenant. And so I'll just say for us this morning, we can think about the fact that we might be inclined to trust our knowledge of the book and our background in religion to save us. And Paul is going to point out why that is flawed. Look in verse 17 with me. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. There is this reality that knowing all the rules doesn't really make you better at keeping all the rules. It just serves to expose how bad you actually are. And so that's what he's attacking, uh, attacking for religious people. Like, you've got the book, and that is a good thing if you are using it properly to bring you into humble submission to God. But unfortunately, part of our brokenness, we are going to begin to use the book to make a comparison to others. Like, hey, I keep more of this than they do, so I'm gonna tell them about my level of superiority because I've got all the law. And so that's what he's doing. And we can recognize that around us. So right now, um, just uh, across the scope of the United States, the average household owns three Bibles. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but if we looked across the scope of our country, we would probably find a lot of brokenness that would um, sadden our hearts and that we would know is not reflective of the goodness of God's instruction that he has offered through his word. Knowing the rules doesn't necessarily make you any better at keeping the rules. And so um, you are never going to have me stand up here and discourage you from reading God's word. But this very word would tell you that your sinful human heart that needs to be transformed by God could take God's good, good gift of his revelation of himself and it could make you misuse it to serve your own ends instead of why God gave it to us. So what is Paul doing here? He's describing a religious hypocrite. He's describing someone who is constantly talking about how other people should be following the good law of the Lord and constantly preaching to others. And so he has this list he uses about this person. He said, if you yourself are, if you're sure you are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And then verse 21, this is what he says. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? He's making a statement right here. He is not saying that guiding other people is wrong. What he is doing is he is exposing religious hypocrisy 
that there is a tendency, if you are knowledgeable about the things of God, that it becomes a projection on everyone else that they should be doing what you say. And all of us know this story. It's been rampant in our news over the past couple years of how many teachers of God's word in positions of prominence who have railed against the sins of the world, it comes out that they had secret sin of their own. And so verse 24, what Paul is laying out, it says, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's describing a religious hypocrite, and what he is saying in verse 21 is that you should be teaching yourselves. It's not bad to guide children and to expose to other people the good gift of God's law in their life. Those are all good things if it comes from a position of we are all in need of the instruction of the Lord. If you um, are using your knowledge to leverage it as a put down of others, but to not self-examine where you have fallen short of the perfect law of God, you have missed the point. Uh, You know, I can only speak for myself uh, the experience of preaching, Uh, but I would say as I've had the opportunity, um, a lot of times there's a lot of joy in having extra space in my life to read God's word and to think about it and to, you know, pull in commentaries and see how other people, but I would say uh, 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 by and large, a, a very significant part of my experience with preaching isn't a lot of fun because when I have this space to sit and read the word of God, the level of feeling exposed continues to go up and up and up. And sometimes leading up to a Sunday, it is a struggle because I do not feel up to the task of bringing the word of God to God's people because that whole week I read the perfect law of God and it was set in contrast to my own heart and my own life and I see how much I fall short. And so reading the word of God is good. Using it to bludgeon the world around us when we still struggle with sin is going to um, move us into an area of danger where we might be tempted to put our trust and our level of knowledge and not in the God who gave it to us. Let me just share this insight with you. Biblical knowledge is not the measure of spiritual maturity. Biblical obedience is. Let me just say that again. Biblical knowledge is not the measure of spiritual maturity. Biblical obedience is. And that's what Paul said right there in that beginning section. It's not the hearers of the word. It's the doers who are righteous before God. And so we need that in our lives. We need that reminder. We know the reality that um, the word of God has been brought into disrepute in the world around us by religious hypocrites. And so let us humbly submit ourselves to God and ask graciously for his mercy that that would not be said of us, that we can proclaim the word of God because of its goodness, leading us to humility and deeper trust in him. Let us not just trust the book, but trust the author of the book. Verse 25, Paul continues, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God." And so religious people, the Jewish people at the time, they had the law, they had the book. They also had the covenant of circumcision. So they had both the book and the background of being religious. And so what he's saying is that circumcision is of some value. He's saying, hey, the history you are a part of matters. And so they had the covenants of God. They were the chosen people. God had chosen to reveal himself to them and call these families to follow him. And so if you think about just all through the Old Testament, you know, you think about the book of Joshua when the people of Israel had the opportunity of God bringing them into the promised land and Joshua laying it out for them like, hey, what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the world or are you going to choose God? And he said, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They were recipients of that promise. They had all of the background of faith. And many of us have probably come from families of faith, uh, from legacies of faith. That is a wonderful, good gift from God, but it doesn't save you. And it can be easy to begin to identify with uh, the lineage that has gone before us, or if we are in the right church tradition, or if we have done the things long enough that is a means of salvation versus a means of grace that God has extended into our lives. And so Paul is not saying that this is bad. Verse 25 says, circumcision is indeed of value if you follow God, if you obey the law. And so this is not a bad thing. But what was the point of God calling those religious people and giving them uh, the oracles about himself, them being recipients of the law? What it says within the Old Testament is the reality of him choosing a people and setting them apart for himself was that they would be a light to the world around them. But I know so often when we begin to buy into uh, the legacy we are a part of or the family we are a part of or how religious I have been over the course of my life, usually what begins to creep into my life is not a testimony of God's grace and mercy on me, but a position of superiority that the others who are not a part of what I've been a part of are somehow lesser in the eyes of God. They are not as religious as me. They are not as holy as me. They are not as close to the Lord as me. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying like, hey, if your uh, perspective is just like, my family has all followed Jesus since I was born, but you don't actually honor God in your heart, your uh, covenant with God, your set apartness as being within the Christian community is actually of no value at all. It's supposed to lead us to a place of humility. And so that's what he's saying. Like, hey, this idea of circumcision that God gave his people, this is how you can show that you're in part of the covenant people of God. Although it was this external sign God gave them to embark in, it had really to do with the inward expression of faith. And so he's saying, hey, this outward circumcision made with human hands, it's null and void. And someone who maybe does not have that legacy of faith, maybe has not been brought up within the Christian community, maybe doesn't know all the rules of the law, but man, in their heart, they are so excited about what Jesus has done for them. God is saying like, hey, that's the true measure of actually being in the community of faith. It's not an external thing done with hands. It is something internal that God does in your hearts. If we look at our own religious background and have any sense of entitlement, we have missed the point 
coming from a legacy of faith and having a foundation of biblical knowledge should make us praise God for his mercy on our lives. That he would love us in such a way that we were brought into families that love and honor God. That is an incredible gift he's given us, that he would have mercy on my life by allowing me to be in a family that taught me the word of God since birth. It should bring us to a position of humility, not to a position of entitlement. So I want us to look at two of the parables of Jesus. And you know, so we've mentioned that the book of Romans is uh, Paul's probably most expansive theological work. So it's a lot of really dense teaching, which any effort of theology is really taking the teachings of Jesus and trying to put it in a way that we can understand and apply to our lives. And so as I just uh, reflected on uh, these scriptures uh, this, uh, this whole past week, it kind of led me to think about some of the things Jesus taught. And I think that Paul picked up on, and that's where he's pulling some of these themes from. And so if you would, look with me in Luke chapter 18, one of the parables of Jesus. In Luke 18, uh, starting in verse 9, Jesus tells this story. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you pick up what Jesus is teaching right here that is not our human standards of morality, although there is right and good ways to proceed through this life in order to be justified by the God of the universe. It goes back to our premise that we have a problem that we cannot fix. And religion is a poor replacement for casting ourselves at the feet of Jesus and receiving the mercy that none of us deserve, regardless of how we perceive ourselves in the game of comparison we could play with somebody else. We need the mercy of God on our lives. Our religion is a poor replacement for receiving the mercy of Jesus. Look with me in Matthew chapter 22. Starting in verse 1, this is what it says. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. 
Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. I've always found that parable of Jesus fascinating. And, and, and I believe there's, there's a whole lot in that parable. But he's talking about this reality uh, that the chosen religious people oftentimes are the ones who actually reject the invitation of God. So although uh, they have this standing invitation, you know, the people of Israel, they've been brought up with the stories, they, they had the covenants, they had the law. When God actually showed up and offered the invitation to relationship, they decided that they were good and kind of rebelled against that idea. And in, in the same way, one of us might be, ha, have brought up in a very moral way. And when we hear the preaching of God's word, that God extends himself to us to receive his grace and mercy, we might just be content with our own self-discipline, our own self-will to, you know, I've kept all the rules, I'm good to go. And so what uh, Jesus is teaching right here is that in that situation, God's invitation has extended out into the whole world. And so I love how he says, like, I've sent my servants out. And I love this phrase. It's kind of a throwaway phrase. But in verse 10, right at the end of what we read, he says, he gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. That should destroy any notion we have that our life is a scale of how many moral acts we've done or not done. That overwhelmingly, the message in the scriptures that it is not the most moral person who is in, it's the one to whom Jesus says, come, and they do. And that is the message of the gospel, and that's what Paul is trying to unpack for us, that although maybe we have lived an externally moral and religious life, you know, we have to adopt uh, even what the apostle Paul realized in his own life, as religious as he was and as moral as he was, what he said is like, I have come to count everything else as garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. We actually have to believe the scriptures that we might prop up as the source of our knowledge and the source of our justification where it says, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. And so the one who is justified before God, the one who is in, the one who will receive life everlasting is the one to whom Jesus has come, and they do. And I would just invite you this morning, I truly believe that the God of the universe, the testimony of him that we find within the Bible that we champion to week after week after week is still to this day, in this moment, extending the invitation to all.